Hello and welcome to a special episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. As regular listeners, I'm sure, are now well aware, the usual routine is that I speak to a maker or designer about a material or technique they're intrinsically involved with and have spent their careers honing to discover how it changed their lives. However, once in a while, I allow myself to break those particular shackles and chat to someone who has an overview of the worlds of art, design, craft and architecture. Today, my guest is Adam Nathaniel Thurman, who I think it's safe to say is a person of many parts, a London-based designer whose practice ranges from architecture and interiors to sculpture and products, most of which are notable for their unabashed use of colour. He's also an author and columnist, an activist and teacher, as well as a prodigious Instagrammer. He is at least partly responsible for the current renewed interest in postmodernism and was described by The Observer's architecture critic, Rowan Moore, as one of architecture's rising stars in 2017. Hello, Adam. Thank you very much for doing this. My pleasure. <laughs> um, so I'd like to kick off kind of unusually for this podcast, but we're meeting two days after Notre Dame caught light. Um, you are, as we've discussed in the intro, uh, a kind of regular user of social media. Yes. You're not afraid to show your emotions on social media either. <laughs> I mean, can we talk about A, how it made you feel, and B, why, why buildings matter? Um, so in terms of how it made me feel, it, I, it was funny because I was just now having a conversation on, on sort of Facebook private message with some other, some other architectural colleagues around the world and they've all been affected in a very similar way and that's profoundly emo- emotionally in a sort of like very f- almost physical, tangible way, like a sense of grieving as if you've lost someone. Mm. Um, and it, you know, it was as visceral as tears. I mean, sort of, I, I couldn't stop crying and it was really 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 powerful i had to run out of lunch in boston um because i sort of slightly lost control of myself <laughs> um and the poor person who was hosting the lunch sort of ran out and sort of was hugging me <laughs> it was it was very it was a very immediate and strong response. did the people in boston understand possibly mm. um but I, I think maybe i'm quite effusive <laughs> <laughs> in my responses to things uh, and maybe yeah and maybe just show it a little bit more obviously so probably they probably the way it was it was someone in the architectural field um but buildings matter um you know not all buildings matter but there's certain buildings which uh, accrue meaning for many different groups in society over many years and they come to mean lots of different things for different people but those various meanings are profound um, and it's that layering, I think, of like multiple um, associations from different groups that makes make a building sit in our hearts. Um, it's a little bit, and because they're they're mute, very often they're allowed to, they're able to do that. A little bit like the Queen. Now you've got a lot of political figures that are loved, like Barack Obama, mm. but he's loved by a particular section of society because he's political necessarily. Whereas the Queen, on purpose, is a silent vessel for accruing meaning for many different people for many different reasons, and that's why we love her so much more than we could ever love a political figure. And similarly, certain buildings do the same thing and Notre Dame was very much one of those I mean is there a sense of I mean all, I mean I guess also if we're talking about Queen Elizabeth II there is a sense of permanence with her she's been there for all our lives in the same way that buildings are whereas yes. politicians tend to have a set term yes exactly does that make a difference absolutely I mean there are you know there are traditions in other countries where they have presidents who are meant to be more um sort of uniting figures um but they're they're not as important precisely for that reason they Mm -hmm. have a term and buildings and that was another really shocking thing about this i mean you know heritage buildings we should we should care about them more we should visit them more because they are actually um tenuous they do disappear but of Mm. course in our heads they don't they're permanent and i think in in other countries like in in japan for instance they have more of an understanding that that buildings disappear that they don't last 
with Europe, we've been brought up with this idea. Architects are obsessed with this idea of permanence. What is permanent? What is beyond fashion?、Um, but even things that we think of as permanent do die, and that's a scary thing. And that's what this reminded us, and that's why it was so traumatic. I think because it was something we presumed it would be there forever,、mm. and it, it it is still there. It's not entirely lost. Actually, the news is very good in the、mm. past day. And the rose window survives. Yes,、yeah, this was this was particularly. <laughs> oh my god! I was I was yeah. I I actually felt sick,、oh. and I was just constant. It wasn't just me. It was a group of us. We were constantly scouring the internet with Google Translate, just trying to find out any news. And it was so frustrating because videos were coming back, and the videos from inside were only showing the south window. Yeah. And everyone was saying, "Oh, the rose window has survived." It was like there's three of them. <laughs> Um, but、uh, we were, yeah. I was, I was very much. That, that's very much for me. You know, once the vaults are mostly okay,、um, we obviously will need more time to find out about damage to do with water ingress, which can be quite serious. Also, damage to do towards heat and the limestone. But the rose windows is like the immediate one that we can know whether or not they've shattered and they're there. So one of the kind of more interesting things about you is you have this uh, sense of uh, architectural historicism. But you also love pop culture. So we first met what, five years ago, I think 2013.、Yeah. Uh, you were working in Ron Arad's studio, yeah. And、um, I was trying to curate an exhibition about the relationship between architecture and craft, and I was very keen to have some pieces of yours、um, in there. You didn't try; you very successfully did. I successfully did. <laughs> yes, I did. But you, you were keen to meet. I wanted to meet, and you were very keen that we met in Nando's next doors to to Ron's office, where apparently you had lunch every day. Is yes, this, is this right? Yes. Well, no, was I mean, it? no, no. It was a luxury. My luxury lunch. It was your luxury. My lunch. luxury lunch. What was it about Nando's you particularly enjoyed? And is it still a thing that you do? Yeah, well, no, Nando's. I, I don't go so much anymore. I'm trying to be healthier. <laughs> I, I sort of gained a lot of weight <laughs> with my sort of bad eating habits. But I, 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 there's a there's a, a pleasure or an in, enjoyment that I have with things that are somewhat anonymous and common,、uh, and shared by lots of different groups in society. And it's like anything from boots <laughs> to like I don't know John Lewis, a kind of middle class thing. To Nando's, where I like, I have a certainty in knowing that it's part of something which is multiple. It's everywhere. It's always consistent and reliable, and many, many different people enjoy it. And it's sort of, I guess, it's a little bit like another kind of vessel、mm. for society. It's not like a very sort of specific place that's totally only about one local place. And yet, they are all slightly different. So, so you don't subscribe to the fact that brands like Nando's are kind of homogenising the high street in, the, in that sense? Yeah, they did. I mean, but that's not. I mean, you know, that's Britain's fault for allowing it to go so far. I mean, you, you go to other countries and you've got chains similar to Nando's,、um, and they also manage to live in parallel with with plenty of surviving historical independent shops. I mean, Britain now, you know, there's a move back towards independent shops. With all the, well, there has been a move back where you know Starbucks are closing now because of、yeah. all of these independent cafes. But then it's weird because those independent cafes are like faux chains because they're also similar, but actually they're you know. Pretend only. I don't know. They're owned independently, but they seem just as similar as all of the chains. But they don't have much of the benefits, and they're way more expensive.、Mm. So yeah, Britain tends to like chains too much. So it did get rid of a lot of those independent shops that we had when we when when I was young. But that's I wouldn't blame you know companies doing their job well for that.、Mm. Um, See, I always wonder if you went to Nando's. There's a lovely story about or a fascinating story about David Lynch, who when he was making Razorhead went to the same bar- burger joint. Every day for lunch, had the same thing for lunch every day. Did that relate would, to a razorhead in any way? I don't. Well, I don't know. But、okay. what he would do is he he would sketch on napkins, and these would become storyboards and all this kind of stuff. And、um, 
I guess my take on that was that he was kind of taking a decision out of his life so he could concentrate on what he really wanted to do. And I was wondering whether Nando's played that role well, many life. multiple things play that role in my life, I guess. So my, my, that drives my it drives my boyfriend completely crazy that I could easily go to the same restaurant for the rest of my life, <laughs> and I, I know, and I could go to the same lunch place, I could do the same walks. I I don't like change, so I, I think I think and in the AAs, I remember that some of the tutors would laugh at me because like I, I dressed so normally, and they were like, "Why your work so crazy? You why don't you look like your work?" Mm. I was like, "Well, because there's certain areas where I'm going to be creative." Um, and food and those environments does really, really help me. I feel really safe and comfortable when it, it is and, and the same. <laughs> it, it is really somehow quite comforting. Which is interesting because you spend a fair amount of your time nowadays travelling around the world, judging from your Yeah, it's Instagram. really stressful. Yeah, and do you find that stressful? <laughs> Very stressful, immensely stressful. And actually, to be honest, it's, it takes me quite a while to recover when I get back. Because I'm, I'm very much like, um, routine is really important for me. Repetition is really important for me. And uh, being, you know, I love visiting new places. And when I'm there, I really get very excited and I see a lot of new things. But it really knocks me for six. And it takes me quite a while to be able to sort of reconstruct my, my lifestyle and my routine mm. when, I, when I get back. Um, and my favorite artist when I was growing up was um, Frank Auerbach who's uh, from this sort of North London school, um, like Lucy and Freud uh, and Kitai. Um, and he, and I, re- what I really liked about him, I mean, obviously I liked his paintings, but was his relationship with place and his relationship with artistic practice. And there's an idea of an archeology span of one place. So he would, he drew for his whole career. He's still alive. He drew for his whole career, the same thing. So he, he's drawn Primrose Hill like a thousand times mm. and painted Primrose Hill a thousand times from the same viewpoints. And he's drawn Mornington Crescent the same time, the same way from the same place, like a thousand times. And he has very few sitters. I think he's had like five sitters over the course of his whole career. And it's like he's trying to excavate or find something in the mundane, that there's something deep in the, pre- in the everyday. It's not about the quotidian lifestyle, but it's like everywhere you look, there's something deep. It's how you look. And that's pretty much the approach that I've always had. Um, so yeah, these in my everyday life, it's taking away thought or having to make decisions. But it's also the fact that um, too much novelty can, can obscure the real depth, I guess, mm. in life mm. for me. Hmm. And can, I we talk about, can we talk about your background? Yeah. Because you don't see much of your life kind of online or in articles. Where did you grow up? What did your parents do? So I, I, grew, up, um, I grew up in North London. I'm a so born, born Londoner um, uh, from the border between Hampstead and Golders Green. Uh, my parents, uh, my mother's, um, she's brought up in Japan. She's Japanese kind of Israeli. I mean, we, I say Israeli, but like her father was a Jewish refugee from Germany right. who, who married a Japanese, um, who managed to escape. He managed, so there was a route that uh, Shanghai was the only open city for Jews in the world. So like he managed to make it to Shanghai. It's like quite, I think it was quite a story. And then from there he made it to Kobe and Kobe was a sort of semi-free port. And then from there, the Jews were trying, most of the Jews were trying to get fake visas to try and get to Honolulu to get into America. And there he met my my, mm. gran- my grandmother um, uh, who's and, and married and they sort of had they hid during the war in the mountains and they had kids and the family was brought up in Japan so that's how she ended up there and my father's from Argentina from a sort of cattle ranching region north it's called Meso- it's the Entre Rios it's the Mesopotamia of Argentina it's between two very large rivers mm. and he was brought up on the border of the Rio Uruguay next to Salto which is the border with Uruguay what do they do um, so they they're retired now. Um, they're, I mean, they're not, they're not very old, but they're quite old. Um, they were, my mother was in finance 
she was an investment banker, a female investment banker in the city, which is interesting. I think she's quite a toughie. Yeah. Um, and uh, my dad was an engineer, so he went from uh, engineering and then shifted over into management and then became a, um, a sort of business business person, I guess, and mostly related to telecoms uh, uh, development of telecoms infrastructure in Eastern Europe. So, so when did your interest in art, design, architecture? And in what order, actually, did they all come? When did they develop? Very early on. So I had, uh, I had quite strong learning difficulties uh, when I was young. Um, so reading and writing was very, very, very difficult for me. And I was a very, I was very low achiever. I think the word achieve is sort of not really appropriate to the context of me in school. Um, so <laughs> I was just low, <laughs> generally. And, um, but w- what I could do is I, I had like my own world which was and apparently my mother was actually like this when she was young as well like I could draw so I could draw and I could look at pictures uh and I could make things so my, my parents had a joke they would like give Adam some some sellotape and a scissors and a piece of paper and a pen and he'd be happy for like the rest of the day and I really was and it was sort of my it was my escape and it was my safety place so um from pretty early on I was just like making things and my parents I, I still remember now I think when I was super young they got me a coloring in book and I still remember that coloring in book because I became so obsessed with it and I was like I'm so good at coloring in I'm so good at this and I really love it and it was just it was just coloring in and it sort of I think it built up from there so it was like a safe place that that only grew and it's and it sort of still is my safe place and it was through many difficulties in life sort of drawing and making um, and looking were were mine they were mine and mm. I was good at them um, but then, then that sort of uh, was fostered and taken care of or developed. Um, I had a friend, I made a friend when I was like six years old, an American girl who'd just come over. And it so turned out that her father was a partner in SOM. And her, well, he, he became a partner. He wasn't a partner at the time. And then his, her mum was a sort of really fantastic artist, uh, sort of from the feminist circles of Chicago. Um, and they they were sort of like my artistic parents. They really, <laughs> they really, really amazingly pushed both me and her mm. to take it seriously. So like they, she'd sit us down and she'd make us draw. And she recently sent me an email photo of this portrait that I drew. And I was like really young. And I was just like, it's amazing. I was like, I did that? But it, was, it wasn't even a drawn portrait. It was like a vinyl cut. Like it was right. really, wow. really good. Wow. Okay. And it was her forcing us to. Mm. So she's like, you're good at this. Take it seriously. It's a very American, like driven, you know, if you want to do something, do it well kind of thing. Um, and then the father was constantly telling us about architecture. Constantly. And so there was that input from a very early age where I was already developing this sort of... Uh, personal passion for making and drawing um are you still in contact with him yeah, yeah i'm still in contact what, do, what does he make of your him. your work i wonder uh, som he's just well he's not he he's so, not som anymore. i don't know if you know it tends unless you're david charles p- partners tend to get pushed out at sort of a certain age um so i wouldn't say pushed out but like he's sort of left at a certain age and set up his own company but he's just really lovely <laughs> he's just one of those people that is just happy that people make things and that if any if somebody is able to live a life where they're able to make and design he's happy for them which i know is not very common in architecture <laughs> they tend to want to sort of destroy things that are not like them but he's really not like that so where did you study um, the AA, the Architectural Association, which was um, very lucky because I didn't really get my 
A levels. I mean, I sort, <laughs> sort of got, I got like an A level, but um, I couldn't get in. So most universities, you know, they have like A level requirements, and like I know I couldn't get an interview at Bartlett. I couldn't get an interview um, at uh, at Westminster. It's like I just wasn't able to access all of these places. Um, I managed to get an interview for uh, Kingston, which is a really good school, and I and then I got an interview for the AA. And um, the AA didn't have at the time. Now they they're having to because they're becoming registered as a university, but they mm. basically had no academic requirements. It was entirely based upon the interview. And I turned up with a literal truckload of paintings and drawings. I mean, I I, I look back now and I'm like, how I, I was like ridiculous how much stuff I turned up with because I was just constantly drawing and I had so many things to choose from and obviously because they were able to choose on the interview they offered me uh, they offered me a place which I think I cried for like a week because <laughs> I couldn't believe that I actually got a university uh, place and um, and w- studied all the way all the way through there and it was like the best experience of my life to be honest the AA probably saved me right from, from going, what from, <laughs> uh, <laughs> from being a bit of a wild child not in a not in a sort of like intentional like way, mm. but just being being an outsider kid was bad at school that never really fit in in any way. Growing up in London, discovering that there are sort of um, uh, groups, communities that you can be part of, um, and then perhaps misbehaving as well with those with substances and all kinds of things. Uh, not having a focus, but but having a very active mind uh, and becoming quite self-destructive. So if I, if I hadn't have been brought in, in some way within a profession that could entirely consume me, it would have not, I don't think things would have worked out very mm. well. Mm. Because, I mean, I like this use of the term active mind because you do, I often look at your output and wonder, I mean, how many hours a, a night do you sleep? I wonder. Well, Netflix doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> So I end up I end up at sort of midnight watching Netflix. So uh, too little at the moment because of Netflix. So otherwise I'd be sleeping six hours. Yeah. And so at the AA, what we what was your work like? When did this interest in? Well, do we talk about? Do we call it postmodernism? How do you describe what it is that you do? I mean, you've become a poster boy for postmodernism. Yeah, not like not, it not. In, not intentionally, but mm. as, as lots of people like to point out, it's your fault, Adam. <laughs> um, <laughs> or as mean people are asking, you ask for it, you want the attention. I get that a lot, generally. It's like, you want the does attention. Does that bother you? Of course it does. Mm. Of course it does, because I am who I am. And, you know, ever since I first came out, I've been told that I'm just doing things for attention. But basically, if you stand out and you're a bit exuberant, you know, it's a little bit like you're, 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 if some bad things happen to you, people tell you it's your fault. Mm. And that mm. happens a lot. But no, it's it's not postmodernism per se. So I, I got into that because I care about heritage, I mean, as we were talking about Notre Dame, I care about, I just care about architectural history a lot. Um, and I, 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 growing up in the UK, it's been very, very depressing to see the same mistakes happening every generation. So, you know, we lost so many Edwardian, we lost so many Victorian buildings and then the Vicksock was set up. And then we lost so many Edwardian buildings, which to be honest, we're still losing. Uh, we lost so many um, uh, mid-century post-war buildings from the kind of cute modernist period still being demolished. Then we lost so many brutalist buildings and it takes, you know, and people like celebrating the loss of these buildings and it happens every generation. And then 10 years later, they're like, oh my God, we demolished mm. all that amazing mm. work um, without a debate about what, what's worth keeping. And the same thing was happening with postmodernism. And the reason I was just kind of kicked into action was I just saw we, there's very little postmodern architecture in the UK, good postmodern architecture. Um, and I saw quite a few of them starting to be demolished and uh, people celebrating. In the same way that they were celebrating previously about, you know, good brutalist buildings being demolished, which we now know can be incorporated into our urbanism in really successful ways without needing to be demolished. 
Um, and it just, it just, the, the rank hypocrisy and the, the utter stupidity, cyclical stupidity irritated me. So I just got started campaigning to try and, to try and start a discussion about protecting, um, the ones we consider good mm. and like scanning people to say which ones they might consider to be good rather than, you know, me saying, I think this building is a really fantastic piece of architecture and, you know, a certain famous architectural historian swearing at me and standing up and walking away from the table. It's not really a adult way of relating to just a style. Um, so that got me involved in the heritage aspect. And then from another angle at school, you know, I went through architecture during a, a period of uh, sort of uh, do- a doctrine in architecture where you either had to be sort of a technophobe, where architecture was valified and justified by its relationship to contemporary technology and looking like something that should that is made out of contemporary technology, or this kind of super minimalist haptic approach where it's all about the the reality and sentient not sentient, but the kind of the substantive reality of materials. Can know? we talk about practices that maybe embody both those? Yeah, things. so, um, you know, on the one hand, like, Zumtor is a kind of extreme example of, like, the kind of the haptic side, but there's plenty. There's 6A, Caruso Singer, mm. and David Chipperfield. This kind of um, re- reduction to sort of uh, essential um, architectural language, which is all about, like, uh, basic archetypal forms with materials which speak for themselves. And, you know, it's a little bit like, what does the brick want to be kind of thing. So there's those approaches. And on the other hand, the kind of technophiliac approach, which I was surrounded by at the AA, is sort of Zaha Hadid, effectively. Yeah. And there's UN yeah. Studio and... Uh, there's lots of other practices that nobody remembers anymore. Um, and uh, effectively, the questions that I was really interested in, coming at it from a sort of a background of me never really fitting in, my family being kind of like weird, weird, unplaceable international background, yeah. um, but, you know, not really fitting into that either because I just look white, uh, just feeling outside of all of that. Then also coming from a sort of queer background with a sense of Jewish, transnational Jewishness, wondering where the hell is that all embodied in architecture? So the idea that ident- complex issues of culture and identity expressed in an aesthetic manner visually, because there's a denial of architecture as an aesthetic and visual pursuit. Where on earth can that exist? And the only period recently that this allowed or there was a frame that was opened up to allow these kinds of issues being explored was during the postmodern period. So I'm not particularly interested, let's say, in like the Aldo Rossi, Michael Graves, high East Coast or high Italian Mm. intellectual postmodernism, but more about the outsider practices that were allowed to happen and to flourish during that period and actually be accepted rather than, they still happen now, but they're literally not even considered part of the canon. Mm. I mean... So I was approaching that idea of this opening up where architecture had more of a continuity with the past um, in the sense of ornament, decoration. You, you talk about dealing with postmodernism's, postmodernism's desire to deal with complexity. Yes. Uh, well, complexity is a sort of big catch-all for it is. a lot of really, really individually important and complex questions. Um, but then it, because postmodernism provided a label, it allowed people to dismiss all of these rich practices, which for most of history have defined most of architecture, actually, yeah. um, and, and effectively locked people like me out of the profession. So why did that happen? Why did postmodernism get the rep that it's got? Um, well, because it's very problematic and there was a lot of irritating aspects to it. I mean, the, the, the issue was that there was an opening up in the 1960s, generally in culture, um, which freed up architecture as well. And so if you look at fine art, um, if you look at poetry, um, if you look at even politics and activism, it was a huge opening up to all of these questions that I just mentioned. Um, and in architecture, that also happened. But unfortunately, it got owned <laughs> by a few East Coast, East Coast and, and British and Italian intellectuals, and they stamped their name on it. So it became Venturi postmodernism. Mm. It became Gravesian postmodernism, which became a sort of very reduced idea of these set of formal tropes, these shapes, these colors. 
Um, and these very, very specific didactic ideas as laid down in a couple of books, whether it be Charles Jenks's or Venturi's or Aldo Rossi's. Um, and that, that made it into a sort of game, an intellectual game for our, for a set of academic architects. Mm. And from that point on, it's died. Okay. It atrophied because all of the other practices that I sort of talking about, that big opening up ended because everything got labeled and formalized. And I mean, there's, you know, and there Denise were... Scott Brown talked about postmodernism becoming POMO, which is fundamentally money coming into it, though, isn't it? Yeah, but that's her also only own, trying Owning, to own, own what yeah, came yeah. before that, which yeah. is just, I mean, yes, they were by far and away the most brilliant theoreticians at the time in, in academic architecture. But there was a kind of host, a host of practices that were opening up, sort of, of alternative, you know, kind of alternative aesthetics. I mean, Susan Sartag in the 1960s was discovering the aesthetics of camp. There's a very long history, for instance, of like queer interiors, queer aesthetics, which were not her idea of, of what uh, postmodernism was. So that's a, that POMO postmodernism is a very specific debate between a few people on the East Coast in the universities. Yeah. So it's quite interesting, Adam, because you wrote this book with Sir Terry Farrell. Yes. Uh, revisiting postmodernism. Yeah. And I went to a talk that the pair of you gave a little while ago at the RABA. And having I hadn't read the book at that stage. I read the book recently because I was doing this interview. And it seems to me that your your ideas about it had moved on from this book. Because you give a kind of, in the book, you give quite a kind of general history of international postmodernism. So Terry writes a section which is more kind of personal and more British, I guess. Yeah, very British. But you're, you're now talking about kind of queer culture and your kind of more recent activism and the stuff that you're writing about on Instagram is about, and there's a piece in the AR, the outrage in the AR, about oh, yeah. the fact we don't have a kind of visual culture or there's no way that the, the queer culture is being talked about in architecture. So it, you, you connected in very much with POMO, but it seems you've moved, you've moved on, basically, is what I'm asking from this book. Well, yes and no. I mean, in the sense that that book has a very specific purpose to it. Right. It's not my book. Um, it is, uh, I, there is my section to it, and that section is meant to show the plurality of voices and approaches. It's attempting to show the plurality of voices and approaches that existed over from the 1950s to the 1990s. Um, and the attempt there was to take it from this sort of monolith to a slightly more granular perception. So that's sort of like a very general uh, beginning of the opening up and the understanding of the period, but also, I guess, what the possibilities are now towards including the kinds of discussion that I'm having. Mm. So my, my discussion is just like one of many that could occur if architecture opened up to these kinds of questions. Is architecture likely to open up to these kind of questions? Um I don't see. I mean, I don't see why not. But with the kind of with the kind of blowback that I get, maybe not. Well, I was intrigued because I, I was intrigued at that at that talk at the RIBA. The president of the organisation kind of put his hand up and asked. I found a fairly remarkable question where he said, "I've got this this aphorism running around my head from Homo to Pomo," uh, and yeah, but there's a is, lot. Is, of is that. that what you get in the profession? I wonder. Um, so reading back in the history of discussions of like postmodernism, for instance, it was seen, there's a lot of sort of semi-misogynistic, semi-homophobic, um, but like dog whistle versions of that kind of language in, in terms of how people discussed it. Um, and I think what's interesting is that for a period, you got some sort of, you know, very, very normal mainstream straight <laughs> people operating in a way that could be considered queer in some ways, mm. briefly. Um, and it's funny because the reaction against... Such as? 
Um, no, no, just in terms of using aesthetics which were extremely exuberant, communicated in a visual way which is theatrical and like comparable with a lot of camp approaches. But again, I'm talking for a very, very limited period because it became formulized so quickly and became just an academic game. Um, but for a very brief period, it did start that there was a there was a sort of range of practices and there were some projects which could be approached or could be discussed in a partially queer way. And they were reacted to negatively in a similar way to the way the queer community, for instance, has been reacted to, which is very interesting that even when someone mainstream starts to partially operate in a slightly alternative way, they can get attacked in a similar mm. manner to how you know, someone who operates in that way for their whole lives does. And of course, somebody who's operating in, for, their, for their entire life in that way will, will be uh, under much more sustained attack and be mm. margin, marginalized much more quickly and mm. consistently. I mean, you talk about blowback. Uh, there was a, uh, a post on your Instagram feed saying, would people please stop asking me about the Sean Griffiths piece, which is obviously... Oh, that was a, that was a joke. Yeah, I mean, that was a <laughs> yeah. Well, here we go. Because there's like a red rag to a bull to an interviewer, obviously, in a situation like this. Yeah, that, uh, was, tongue, that was tongue-in-cheek because, like, for instance, like, an, an interviewer had just asked me and like, we'd actually had a really interesting discussion yeah. about what he'd said. So it was, it was uh, tongue-in-cheek. Well, well, I mean, what did you make of that, that piece? He wrote a piece in D-Zine kind of... I mean, Sean used to obviously be a co-founder of Fat, which was yeah. was part of a kind of, I guess, a post postmodern movement. Might be one way of putting it. Um, and culturally he, embedded, I'd say okay. more than more than anything. But yeah, they they used they used uh, postmodern tropes, but really interesting practice. And you've been very nice about them, both in your book and in a piece I've read read, uh, read of yours in the AR. How did you feel when he he wrote this piece, being quite critical of of people like yourself in Dzine? Um. I don't know. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, I found, because he's, he's a really good writer. He is. Um, but I found that piece quite confusing to understand, a, a little bit difficult to penetrate, um, compared to his other pieces, which seem, which tend to have a much more sort of like, they had, they had sort of a clearer point to make. So it was, to be honest, it was a bit of confusion. There's just a little bit, just quite a bit of difficulty in understanding how I could respond to it. Because um, I'm like, okay, on the one hand, he was using, they were ironically using the language when they used it and that now it's not appropriate, okay, and then architecture shouldn't speak, okay. I guess he was, it's perhaps for, starting to formulate a series of ideas or questions that will play out over the next few years for him. Mm. So it sounded like the beginnings of a discussion, mm. <laughs> as it were. Um, but when, I, I guess the only thing that was like a little bit sort of difficult was that just that we it was just me and like one other person got mentioned in it, which is so serious. <laughs> it was a bit, almost like I was like oh if he hadn't mentioned it would have been like better because he wouldn't have known that in these internet days something like that can unleash quite a lot of personal blowback and did it yeah yeah it did it, well, um, how, what form does that does that take um so sort of people <clears throat> people atting me in conversations that they're having where they're like, you know, oh, this is just all these ridiculous, stupid millennials, you know, working with political content, devoid of political content. They're just Instagramming snowflakes who don't know what they're dealing with and blah, blah, blah. And then what was interesting was I got quite a lot of private, quite aggressive private messages. Um, and this is this has continued. So it's just strange how people feel that they're able to just approach you in in like private messaging Mm. in quite confrontational ways Mm. um and so there was quite a quite a lot of that it just basically it aroused i think his article aroused a lot of um quite strong emotion 
from people who were really disliking what they saw as a return to something they 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 viscerally disliked and this this gave it maybe gave a little bit of form to their feelings right. and also a direction to their feelings i mean there was like an image of my work which Sean made clear to me he didn't choose that was Dazine chose that and you know there were a couple of name, names mentioned and there's a lot of you know architectural practices who are much more directly pomo like i don't use um for instance formal specific formal tropes my work tends to work within like a uh, spirit <laughs> rather than just like copy pasting there's a lot of people who do copy paste and they weren't mentioned um but anyway it got it did get directed um a little bit towards you know say me who also happens to be very present on social media so mm. it's very easy to access me so it's kind of like a compound of different things plus i'd written the book and i'd written all these articles before campaigning to save particular buildings so it was just it was a sort of um a tornado that just had oh there's a focus and it just sort of like landed mm. Mm. Uh, on me as people have pointed out in a way that's my fault because of all the stuff that i had been doing and it hasn't obviously stopped you using social media though no but i need social media yeah. that's the thing is like i have to, i have how, to how use do social you use media. it um, well, so on one hand, I have to use it because like all my work comes from social media. It's a way that I've managed to bypass the normal gatekeepers of like what's considered good and of quality. So I've managed to form my own audience. I've managed to make connections around the world with uh, people who share my opinions on things. And there's not many of them, but there's a few. And there's just enough to keep me feel like it's worthwhile. Plus an audience who means that like if I write something or if I make something, there's there are people there, there's a, a critical mass of people who will support it. Um, and I don't need those, you know, architectural uh, correspondents who, you know, clearly won't like my work. I don't need them. Um, and the way the way that I've used it is just the way that I, interesting, I took to it like a duck to water because I've used it the way that I would have used, for instance, my sketchbooks in the past. Right. And, uh, I, so I, I don't really, I mean, I use my sketchbooks for work now, like sketching, but I was constantly writing out little ideas and notes and aphorisms and uh, uh, little little extracts from books that I'm reading. And it was just like a register of stuff in my life always. And I would go back to them. Um, and similarly, I sort of like researching just naturally anyway, like constantly looking at things and, and learning about things. Uh, to, and I used to take pictures and then keep all of the photographs. Um, and all that happened is that those various activities would be shift, were shifted over to social media. So when I found something, I'd put it on there. When I have an extract from a text, I put it on there. When I have an aphoristic thought, I put that on there, and and so it sort of happened quite naturally. There mm. wasn't there wasn't like an increase uh, in workload, and like I'm, you know, my attention span is very short, so I'm constantly taking micro breaks anyway, and and those micro breaks just happen with like posting something on uh, online. So it it happened relatively naturally, and it's given you, I mean, quite profound influence now. I mean, this business about making sure interns get paid and, and the response from the serpentine mm. has been fascinating, right? I mean, can we tell us tell us a bit about that? Um, yeah, and getting and getting uh, related to companies to change the uh, the uh, um, the legal contract that you sign when you go on the vessel because I shared that and there was a sort of uproar mm. about it as well. So th- there can be real life consequences, which can be a bit scary because you've got to be careful with that. But um, yeah, because my audience, um, so numerically speaking, I have I think it's like twenty seven thousand followers on Instagram. It's numerically not that much because there's a lot of like design people who have many many more. But what they do is they have the general public following them. Um, so they have people who like to look at pretty pictures or get advice on sofas or whatever. Um, there's a sort of different range of different people who, who sort of appeal to the public. So what happens is mine because it's super geeky. <laughs> it's like super boring stuff for anyone who's not like really obsessed with architecture. 
they unfollow me. So like if like a magazine in Sweden suggests that people follow my account, I'll, I'll have like a thousand new followers in a week. And they'll almost entirely, they, almost all of them will have unfollowed me within a week. <laughs> um, so it's a sort of self-selecting group of people within the architecture and design world, which means, interestingly, that the impact tends to be quite strong if I share something related to that world. Mm. So for instance, if especially if it has resonance, so for instance, the I don't know, I was talking about anti-Semitism in, in the architectural world. And that sort of was, very, again, very problematic for me, but it's something that I, I feel very strongly. And that sort of resonated very strongly for a period. And then the, this sort of issue of, yes, I mean, I was talking about unpaid internships, but it's it's a problem in entirely sort of relate, I mean, sort of with throughout the high culture, high esteem architectural community that operate on uh, competitions or, or survive through competitions, BNLs, installations, uh, small commissions for for um, important institutions. There's a there's a severe financial black hole at the center of that that causes a lot of issues. Anyway, and I was looking, I was sort of looking at various of those issues and how they sort of knot together to make this ball of um, Bad working conditions, effectively, mm. um, that, that set people up in the wrong way very much in architecture and also allow people who are from wealthier backgrounds to access and become part of this highly culturally acclaimed world, which other people are locked out of because they can't afford to participate in it through, for instance, these access points like unpaid internships. Um, but yeah, so I started sharing, I just shared a couple of examples. And what happens is I have a lot of back, uh, things happening in the background, like a lot of direct messaging. So a lot of young people messaging, mm. like really upset young people, mm. um, struggling, you know, and a lot of people who've just left the profession because they couldn't, you know, they, they were not wealthy enough to be able to survive in it. Or even if they were, they just couldn't, they couldn't, you know, they weren't being supported by their parents and they just couldn't live. Um, and it was a little bit overwhelming and really depressing. Um, and so I sort of just started to speak specifically about this international set of very acclaimed practices that, um, d- that, that use this particular practice um, in a very non-competitive way and uh, not about countries, right, but only about these people, these practices who survive off of the international circuit of BNRs and events and commissions and who are celebrated in the architectural press, who are celebrated in awards and who get international uh, interns from all over the world um, precisely because of that acclaim. So it's only talking specifically about that group. Um, and it, it just had a very strong effect because I think my followers are very much within that world. And also a lot of them are young. Mm. Um, and I found that people who haven't yet managed to break into the profession, because once they break in and they're you know, working in these areas, it's really difficult, right? You, have, have, you can't separate yourself from it. But young people are really, they share their anxiety and their frustration, their worries, their fears. Um, when they're on the threshold. Well, it, it is, Adam. And it's also a very brave thing for you to do. I mean, you, you obviously don't mind making enemies, right? No, I do. But, I don't know, sometimes you just do things. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there was quite a lot, there was a lot of blowback on that. Um, no, I do, I, do, I do mind making enemies, but, but also, I, for instance, this, this topic was something that really, you know, again, it's a sort of visceral and emotional response mm. more than anything. Um, you know, and the way I approached it was, I was sort of tried to be careful about it. So, like, I only I only shared again people from practices from that particular category, and only ones that I got multiple uh, um, examples from. Um, and uh, yeah, it was. Um, I, I I wasn't. I guess I wasn't expecting the degree of blowback from the more progressive sides of architecture. That was that was sort of. Um, 
a bit surprising. I thought obviously the the officers that sort of participate in this, but also um, I, you know I, I guess you know it's been really difficult for me, and I felt very vulnerable. Um, which is why I stopped on that. But I, I'm also, rel- you know, a bit proud in the sense that the discussion is now continuing. Um, and it's the same with postmodernism. I pushed so so hard, and the discussion just continued. And I sort of stepped back because it became about me, in a very negative way. And similarly with this, it sort of became, you know, very quickly because it's all happened in a very short span of time. Too much about me, and it shouldn't be about mm. one person at mm. all. It's about a very complex issue. And so I just I stepped back, and these discussions are now happening. And it's not, you know, it's not practices do what is allowed in any given period of time. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's about trying to shift how they operate. So it's about saying, okay, what was done in the past was done in the past. You know, these things were acceptable. Also, it was acceptable in the UK. But now moving forward, perhaps perhaps actually it's time to reevaluate and maybe we can sort of restructure this and move forward. And like, it's like, you know, the past is forgiven. Let's practice differently. Um, And hopefully that's the direction it's going to go in. Although... Um, I don't know, there's a lot of sort of arguing for, from really unusual angles, <laughs> from people that you would maybe expect to to want to sort of untie this Gordian knot. That's not just that, that's one aspect mm. of a Gordian knot of, of sort of, I call it the financial black hole of cultural architecture. <laughs> um, but there, there's a lot of movement as people sort of not wanting to address it from within that world. Right. Um, but, but it might, I think it will. I mean, because the young younger generations are so... Uh, finely attuned and aware of the um, of, of what's of how unfair the situation in the world is that they're coming into. It's not just in architecture; it's across the board in politics as well. You know, industries are going to have to react and respond to a much more active, much more self-aware uh, young generation. And, and I've felt that quite clearly from the sort of feedback that I've been getting. Mm. And now you're out on your own. You're well, making all sorts of things. I was in Milan. The Salone last week, and you had pieces of furniture there at um, Camp Gallery, <laughs> a, a very appropriately named yes, gallery. Yes, <laughs> and that's going to Basel, I think. Yes, that's going to Basel in June. So, did they come to you? Did you go to them? How how do you hook up with some of these clients? Because you make all sorts of things, right? Yeah, well, it's I'm a creature of opportunity, so it's like whatever the hell, whatever the hell I can grab onto, um, I, I sort of work with. But that that's uh, that was one of my first projects when I when I left. Um, permanent employment um, and that's so it's it's th- things tend to have like two or three year lead times for me in terms of like meeting someone and then something actually happening um, but when I was uh, at Rome so just after I had my first interview with you mm. um, I uh, was Instagramming a lot uh, already in Rome during the Rome Prize project where I was a residency at, resident at the British Academy the British School at Rome and uh, so that's an architecture prize the, yeah, the UK Rome Prize for Architecture. One person a year gets to go to uh, live and work in Rome to produce mm. a project for the British Academy. Um, it's like absolutely phenomenal experience. Well, it's had some quite famous people before you, right? Um, yeah, I mean, Will Alsop spent Indeed. a year there writing a science fiction novel. <laughs> <laughs> Only Will Alsop would yeah, do that. Yeah, <laughs> and apparently having a lot of fun. But yeah, it's had some pretty amazing alumni. Um, and the, the American Academy also just constant, constant, pretty in- incredible alumni there. Um, so when I was there, um, the the design editor of Abitare up in Milan, um, I think he just he was really enjoying Instagram at the time, and he fo- he followed me somehow as he randomly it probably suggested him, and he was really enjoying my feed, uh, which was just Rome. It was just like me discovering p- specific periods of Roman history. Mm. And he really enjoyed seeing Rome through my lens. And he actually travelled down to Rome, I think probably for business, but like he came and met me. 
Um, we got on really well. And uh, he's just, he's Marco Samichele. He's an amazing person. He's one of these people that just has a very gentle and generous heart, as well as being an insane workaholic and knowing everybody. And he actually brought me up to Milan um, while I was at the, the academy. And like, he introduced me to the Bitossi family, which for me, this is a ceramic manufacturing family. It's like, I, I could barely speak. I was so like nervous. <laughs> and it was just random. He's like, yeah, this is the Bitossi. And I had lunch with them and like saw an exhibition by that family. Um, and, uh, and he showed me in Milan a little bit. And what happened was that when, I, when he saw that I went out on my own, um, he met these, he knew these two girls, ladies, women, uh, who just set up their gallery. It's very, very hard to break into the design art world in Milan. Yeah. It's run by like these, these behemoths, uh, these very few behemoths from the 1960s and 19, well, 1970s and 1980s. And they really want to break in. And so he, 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 they were very young, like no budget, like very eager and excited and he just suggested he's like oh well adam's also um just starting out and he's in london and like maybe you guys should do a show together and it'll be like a great way that you can like you obviously got loads of energy um and i'm similar to them they're very like voluble and like excitable and loud and um present (laughs) um and uh, so he it was just him suggesting and we had a skype call and we just got on really well um, and that all happened. And then actually, you know, later on, Marco also then put me back in contact with Bitossi because I went on my own as well. So it, it, again, so social media is super important for me. It really leads to really exciting opportunities mm. and I get to meet amazing people through it and bypass, you know, I didn't have to know the, the cool crowd in London. Thank God, um, to get any of this work. And, uh, we're coming to the end of our time. So do you have a a kind of future plan? Do you have a sense of where you'll be in five years? And can you keep up this kind of relentless... It must take a toll, doesn't it, emotionally? Uh, Relentless what? The social media side of things. Um, The activism, the, the blowback that you talked about. Yeah, so that that's been. I mean, it's been. Yeah, it's been a bit. It's been a bit much <laughs> recently. Um, no, I don't think I can keep it up. Um, and to be honest, I'd like I'd like to be able to step back from social media. But at the moment, my practice is still. Uh, it's not on. It's not on terribly firm foundations. I'm still someone who has to go around to get commissions, uh, the normal routes. So um, when I'm when I'm finally in a position to actually have a business that can bring in work constantly and like with a set of clients that I can work with. Uh, and not have to really create my own audience in the same way, then I will be able to step back from it. Uh, but activism, yes, I'm going to step back with. I've already stepped back from it. Already? Yeah. I mean, right. that, that's, yeah, it was really, uh, it was a little bit, yeah. I, I think also because when, when I had less followers, um, I was, it was a little bit more comfortable doing it because like uh, the effects were not so immediate. Um, when now that I've passed a certain threshold of followers and in terms of impact, the 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 degree you know whenever you do something which is active and has a position you necessarily generate multiple angles of people who are sort of extremely opposed to you or will be very critical of you when you're very much in the public uh, spotlight um, even people who like in spirit might agree with you they'll like they'll be really annoyed at the way that you're doing it for instance um, and I now that I've got this I've passed the threshold of a number of followers and that it puts me in a quite vulnerable position because I'm not you know I'm not somebody who's the head of an institution. You know, I'm not Jerry Saltz, who's like a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. I'm nobody, fundamentally. So I'm in an extremely tenuous and vulnerable position. And more so, the more followers I have, because it makes this, anything I say mm. more dangerous for me. Mm. So in five years' time, less of that and more of what? Work. <laughs> Adam, that's a brilliant <laughs> place to finish. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks. 
And to learn more about Adam's work and thoughts, go to adamnathanielferman.com. There are images for the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of material, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. And finally, if you want to sponsor an episode or indeed an entire series, do drop me a line on gdgibson at btinternet.com. Thanks very much for listening.